We've talked about man, the creation, how God governs man, sin, rebellion of man against God and his loving government, the problem that God had in being able to forgive man, how he accomplished all those problems through the cross so that he could justly forgive man. And we talked about the conditions of salvation last night. And this morning we want to talk about the process of sanctification or walking in perfection before God. It is something that is demanded of us in the scripture. It's expected of us. And I want to give you some verses on this. Deuteronomy 10, 12 and 13. Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Why did God command us to do what is right? Because it's for our well-being. It's for our good. So anything that God has commanded, he's commanded us for our good. Not because he's on some strange trip or something like that. It's for our well-being. And notice, too, as I said before in one of the lectures, that God never commanded that we keep his commandments without knowing him, because that is the first uh, commandment. And we shall have no other gods before him. It says, What does the Lord require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and then it says, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. And a lot of people miss that when they read the Old Testament, and they think that the people under the Old Covenant were commanded to to keep God's commandments and his ordinances um, without having a relationship with God, And so they were being commanded to do something that they could not do, which is false. That's not true. The people could keep it, but they had to keep all of it, which was to love God, fear him, serve him, listen to his voice, walk with him. All those things are mentioned. And then they were to keep the Lord's commandments, which when they had that relationship with him, they'd be able to do that. Okay? Um, Deuteronomy 11, verses 22 and 23. For if you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I am commanding you, to do it, to love the Lord your God, see what, see what the commandment is? <laughs> to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and hold fast to him. Then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Okay, and in Deuteronomy 26, verses 16 through 19. Deuteronomy 26, verses 16 through 19. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and ordinances. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have today declared the Lord to be your God and that you would walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments and his ordinances, and listen to his voice. And the Lord has today declared you to be his people, a treasured possession, as he promised you, and that you should keep all his commandments, and that he shall set you high above all nations, which he has made, for praise, fame, and honor, and that you should be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as he has spoken. But it is assumed and commanded that we would keep all of the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. Deuteronomy 28, verses 58 and 59. Deuteronomy 28, verses 58 and 59. If you are not careful to observe all the words of this law, which are written in this book, 
to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God, or Yahweh, your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues and miserable and chronic sicknesses. Now, upon, upon penalty of miserable, chronic sicknesses, la- severe and lasting plagues, he says that the people are to keep all of his commandments and ordinances. It would not be fair of God to command the people to do something they could not do and then to give out that kind of judgment to people for something that they could not do. And God told them that they were able to do what he said. Deuteronomy 30, verse 8. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments which I command you today. Verse 11. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it? But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it, or so that you can keep it. It is not too difficult for you. So if you hear somebody saying sometime that God commanded the law in the old co- under the Old Covenant, but the people couldn't keep it, they ask, well, what about this verse, though? <laughs> it is not too difficult for you. I've given it to you so that you can keep it. It's in your mouth and in your heart. Now, what does he mean by in your mouth and in your heart? It's near to you. It's part of your nature. You understand anyway, intuitively, that that is what you were supposed to do. Okay? You understand that just as a human being, and it's a very simple thing, that is, that we should love rather than being selfish. And Paul the Apostle says, he who loves has fulfilled the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Psalm 4 and verse 4, David said, tremble and do not sin. Tremble and do not sin. Psalm 4.4. 4. He expected us to not sin. 1 Corinthians 15.34 1 Corinthians 15.34 Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. So if you are sinning, you should stop because God commands you to stop sinning. Ever notice that it never indicates in any of these verses that you can't do it? It doesn't say, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. Of course, you won't be able to do that, but... No, 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 It doesn't say any such thing. It just commands you as if it expects that you can do so. Okay? Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. 1 John 2 and verse 1. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, actually. I can find verse 1. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation, or atoning sacrifice, for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Jesus died for all men, as we saw the other day. But it says, these things I am writing to you that you may not sin. The whole purpose of his writing the book of 1 John was that we as Christians should not sin. But if anyone sins. Not when. He doesn't, God never says when you sin. He says if you sin, then you do this. But not when. And 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. 
but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, how much sin does that say you're supposed to be involved in? How much of, yes, zero. (laughs) How much behavior is supposed to be holy? All your behavior is supposed to be holy. And a lot of people look at that and they go, it's not fair, I can't do that. Well, if God has commanded you to do so, you must be able to do so. Because he would not be just in commanding you to do something you can't do. Therefore, you must be able to do it, and if you're not doing it, you are simply guilty for not doing what he's told you to do. Okay, now he offers you help in places where you're in bondage, but you're still responsible to be holy in all of your behavior. In Matthew 5 and verse 48, you shall therefore be perfect as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. You shall therefore be perfect as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. And we saw before that that has to do with manner rather than extent. We cannot be perfect, Matthew 5, 48, we cannot be perfect in in the extent that God is perfect, but we are to be uh, perfect in the manner that God is perfect. Now, the doctrine of uh, sanctification, interesting doctrine, refers to three different areas of your life. And we're going to see what it refers to and how it works. But normally the word sanctification is used for one aspect. But the word sanctification is a much broader word than is the way it's normally used. To be sanctified or to sanctify something means to be set apart. It does not mean necessarily that something is holy. Something can be sanctified without being holy. Um, because the word is used in many different ways in the Old Testament that something was set apart for something or other. It does not mean necessarily it was holy. Um, if you have a dog dish that you feed your dog in, that is a sanctified dish. It is set apart from everything else unto one particular purpose, and that is feeding the dog. Your toothbrush is sanctified. It is set apart from every other purpose. You don't clean your shoes with it. right? You brush your teeth with your toothbrush. And so your toothbrush is sanctified. It is set apart for a particular purpose. And we are to be sanctified, set apart from something, set apart to something. Sanctification always means to be set apart from something and set apart to something. So our sanctification has three different aspects. There is the past, the present, and the future. The past, the present, and the future. In the past, when you became a Christian, you were set apart from the penalty of sin to forgiveness. You were set apart from the penalty of sin to forgiveness, and this, is, this, this aspect of sanctification is commonly called justification. which we saw before, does not mean just as if I'd never sinned, because God never uh, treats us, nor does he think of us, nor anything else concerning us. (laughs) Um, He never speaks of us as if we'd never sinned. It's not just as if you'd never sinned, but to be justified means that God will not carry out the penalty of the law upon you, because he's found a way through the atonement and your repentance to be free to forgive you. So in justification, we're set apart from the penalty of sin, 
to forgiveness. The present aspect of sanctification is what is commonly referred to as sanctification. It's more the present thing. And the present aspect of sanctification, we are being set apart right now from the power of sin. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. You are no longer in the flesh that is bondage to sin, if the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. And if any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And so we are no longer in the flesh, which Paul defines in Romans 7.14, Paul defines in Romans 7.14 as bondage to sin. That's how he uses the word flesh. It means bondage to sin. It does not mean your physical body. Okay? And in the future... This is commonly called in theology, although the Bible uses the word, it doesn't mean this when it's found in the Bible, but this is commonly called glorification. Inheriting glory is something that happens presently, according to the Bible, but commonly in the future this is called glorification by most theologians, and in, this, in the future you will actually be set apart from the presence of sin. Now the past aspect, the past aspect of just of sanctification, which is called justification, deals with you in the realm of your spirit. Whereas once you were dead, separated from God in your spirit because of your sins, your sins have separated between you and your God. You have He made alive who were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. When you become a Christian, your spirit becomes united with God, which is what brings life. This is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God. And so in your spirit, you gain access again to the presence of God, the knowledge of God, the voice of God. And so in your spirit, uh, that's what's been affected in justification. Presently, presently, you are being uh, sanctified in the area of your soul. It says we are receiving, present tense, as the outcome of our faith, the salvation or the healing of our souls. 1 Peter 1.9 We are receiving as the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. Okay? And then in the future, the thing that is going to be affected is your body. Your body is going to be changed. You're going to have a new body. To be like his glorious body. Is that funny? Why? What does it sound like? Oh. Oh. Well, the thing is, the Bible does speak, that God never deals with a human being as anything but as a unit. Okay? But the Bible does split them up to talk about them. Now may the God of peace sanctify you wholly and keep and preserve you spirit and soul and body. Now Paul the Apostle took the trouble to split them up like that for emphasis sake. Okay, we can split them up for emphasis sake. However, God always refers to us and responds to us as a human being, as a total human being. In function, we're not separated. But the Bible does split them up. And it says the Word of God is able to divide between soul and spirit. Okay? 
And so, I, by putting out three different things here, does not mean that I, I think that there are three absolutely separate things. Man is one unit, but the Bible does speak of it as separate. First Thessalonians 5. Your spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Spirit and soul and body. Okay, until your body is going to be set apart from the presence of sin, you're going to have a new body and um, a glorified body as Jesus' body is. Now, I don't know whether or not we're going to be able to go through walls and things like that the way Jesus did, but I hope so. I hope we can travel around the universe, uh, go and see other places. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Okay. Don't have to worry about our, about our bodies being limited to this atmosphere. So take a little trip to Jupiter and see what that's like. If it still exists, there may be a new Jupiter by that time. Okay. I don't know how much of the universe is going to be burnt, whether it's just going to be the Earth or whether it's going to be the whole thing. I have no, have no idea. But he's going to make a new one anyway. There will be new heaven and new earth, and the Bible says that we will be living on the earth. Now, I hope, because, because we're the new Jerusalem, says that in Revelation 21, verses 9 and 10, um, that we're going to be the new Jerusalem, we're going to come down on the new earth that God has made, and we're going to live there with him. The thing is, I hope we can go and travel around. I'm just, just enough of a science fiction nut to want to be traveling around the universe. And so, however, if... On the new heaven and new earth, I'm sure there will be plenty for us to see. Uh, can you imagine with, with glorified eyes looking at a perfect rose or a perfect tree or a perfect animal? Okay. It'd be quite a difference. We can get so excited about it now with a fallen animal looking at it with fallen eyes. Cor everything's been corrupted because of sin, and yet we can get overwhelmed with a sense of beauty sometimes. And uh, then think what's going to happen to you. We might be quite... Uh, quite happy just to look at the earth for the rest of eternity. Okay? But we are going to be in bodies. Yes, yes, yes. <clears throat> we were never intended to have that split up. Now, your spirit, your spirit was brought into life with God, being relieved from the penalty of the law through forgiveness, and that happened because of the death of Jesus on the cross or because of the shedding of his blood. Okay? Your spirit was brought into relationship with God. You were set apart from the penalty of the law, and that happened through Jesus' death on the cross, which has to do with the shedding of Jesus' blood. That's why the Bible refers to blood. It's not a mystical, magical thing, but it's because um, the blood represents his death. And then the um, process of sanctification that is now taking place, where you are being delivered presently, in your soul, through, from the power of sin, happens through the Word of God. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth, Jesus said. John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is... Excuse me. Thy Word is truth. And in the future, in the future, your body is going to be raised from the dead. It says in Romans 8, going to be raised from the dead by that same spirit which raised Christ from the dead. So, we were sanctified in the past through the death of Jesus on the cross. We are presently being sanctified through the word of God. Okay. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Now are you clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. We are washed with the regeneration and renewing of the word, or the washing of the word of God. And then, uh, I got my Timothy and my Ephesians mixed up there, but, um, and then, we, in the future, are going to have our bodies raised through the Spirit of God. 
And then this, in the past, in the past, being justified, being set free from the penalty of the law, was an instantaneous thing. In the future, when we're raised from the dead, or our bodies are changed if we're alive, it will be an instantaneous thing. But right now, the process that we are going through is exactly that. It's a process of sanctification where we're de- our soul, through the Word of God, is being delivered and are being kept through the Word of God. Through the Word of God. Okay, now, uh, they have, we have the blood and the Word and the Spirit, and you have that in, uh, in uh, 1 John, only it calls the, wo- calls the Word of God the water which the Word of God is commonly called water in the New Testament. You're washed with the water of the Word, that kind of thing. Okay? So then you have that in First John... Hmm? Well, that's, that's John 17, 17. First John 5, is it? First John 5. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and the blood, and it is the Spirit who bears witness because the spirit is the truth and these and these are the, and there are three that bear witness the spirit and the water and the blood and the three are in agreement it is concerning our salvation uh, that's first john 5 um, 6 through 8 6 through 8 <laughs> if you read the king james version there's a section in there there's a section in there that says and that there are three that bear witness in heaven the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and these three are one, and that is not in the Greek. That was originally written in a manuscript on the side um, of the thing, because some scribe thought, oh, this is interesting, it looks like the Trinity. And then it was written on the side for quite a while in manuscripts, and then eventually it ended up in the manuscript itself, and somebody copied it as a part of the, as a part of the text. But originally it does not say anything about the Father, Son, and Spirit being three, and being, the three of them being one. Okay, now, we're going to talk about perfection, Christian perfection. We want to take a look at what it is not. What Christian perfection is not. Christian perfection is not faultlessness. Christian perfection is not faultlessness. It doesn't mean to be without fault. A fault or a weakness is not a sin. We've seen that before. Sin is not a mistake. A fault or a weakness is not a sin. And so for us to be perfect, it is not necessary for us to be faultless. A lot of people think that when Jesus said, you shall therefore be perfect as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, it means that they have to be faultless. And therefore they can never be perfect and then they get really frustrated because they think God is telling them that they have to be something or do something that they cannot do and be, which is faultless. But it does not mean faultlessness. You don't have to be faultless to be a Christian, to, be, to walk in perfection with God. Second thing is it is not claiming a victory that you don't have. Remember we talked yesterday about the idea of having a position with God that's different from your actual condition or having a standing that's separate from your state or having a... Um, you know, Jesus looks at you with, uh, um, God looks at you with Jesus-colored glasses, or you're under the umbrella of the blood of Christ, and God can only see the blood of Christ, or all those other things. And um, 
I don't think you were here, Fred, yesterday when I mentioned that, were you? I pointed out a verse, pointed out a verse in the Bible that says God doesn't like that kind of idea. Yeah? Yeah. It's Malachi, I'll read it to you. Malachi 2.17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Showing that God doesn't like the idea that, that if we think that we can be right with him, um, and that he looks upon us as good when we're not actually good, when we're doing evil. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. God does not delight in wickedness, because he delights in steadfast love and justice. So it's not claiming a victory you don't have. A lot of people are going around claiming a victory. I'm perfect in Christ, you know, so forth. And uh, knowing all the while they're fighting battles with their conscience because they know that they're rebelling against the law of God in certain areas of their life. And so it is not, it is not claiming a victory that you presently don't have. Okay? So not trying to claim some kind of position that you have. We don't have to do that because God has provided for us to live above sin. He's provided for us to live above sin. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. If sin has dominion over you, you've got problems. But it's not a problem of not having a position with God. It's a problem with what you're doing, what you're choosing to do. Okay, a third thing it is not, it is not having some kind of a root of sin extracted from you. You do not become perfect by having some kind of a sinful root that is inside of you ripped out through the Holy Spirit. Some people actually believe that kind of thing, that view of sanctification. And uh, one guy that believed this kind of view, I'm chasing something out of my water here. <laughs> one guy that believed this was out with another pastor who did not believe it. And they were, as they were um, sitting at a table in a restaurant, the guy who believed in this kind of, of sanctification was rude to the waitress even to the point of bringing her tears. He was rude to her. And the other guy said, that wasn't, that wasn't very nice for you to speak to her in that way. I think that was rude. And the Bible says, love is not rude. You shouldn't be rude like that. And uh, so he indicated to the guy that he thought he was sinning and that he needed to take care of that. And the guy said, I can't sin. It's impossible for me to sin because I have had, I've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The root of sin has been taken out of my life. It's impossible for me to sin. And so the guy thought, well, I'll talk with a pastor later, but the, the, fellow, the other fellow went to the waitress and apologized for him. You know, I'm sorry that he did this kind of thing to you. I can't really, you know, I can't really apologize for him, but I'm sorry that you were hurt by that. So, and so people can actually come to that kind of idea uh, because of their doctrine. You don't have to have anything taken out of you. Okay? The problem is that we're choosing to do the wrong thing. And what we need to do is change our choices <laughs> if things are wrong. So it is not having a root of sin. See, that would be a metaphysical view of sin, a metaphysical view of sanctification, a metaphysical view of a relationship with God rather than a moral view okay, of our relationship with God. So it's not faultlessness. You don't have to be faultless. It is not claiming a victory that you don't have. You don't, have to have, you don't have some kind of position with God that's different from the state. You are what you are. <laughs> okay? There are not two of you. There's only one of you. And you are exactly what you are. If you're guilty before God because you've sinned, then you're guilty. 
If you're not guilty because you've confessed your sin and you're walking in righteousness before God, then you're not guilty. Okay? And God has provided for all that we need to walk in perfection before him, even though we have damaged our lives by sin and we've come into bondage to sin in our lives. Jesus said, he who commits sin becomes a slave of sin in John 8. And so um, God has provided for us to be free from sin, even if we've been in bondage to sin in the past. Okay, so what is perfection then? What does it mean to walk in perfection? It's living the way God lives. Living the way God lives. Jesus is our example in this. Walking in perfection is living the way God lives. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. As the Holy One who calls you, be holy in all your behavior. So it is living the same way God lives, Matthew 5.48 says, You shall be perfect as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And examples are given right before that in the context of the way the Father is perfect. And that is that he loves everybody the same way. He loves the evil person and he loves the good person. And he does good to both of them. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Now, what does that mean, to heap coals of fire on somebody's head? It does not mean to convict somebody's conscience. That is a perverted Western interpretation of that verse. The verse is being quoted from which book in the Old Testament? Maybe you don't even know. In so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Do you think the Lord will reward you for deliberately trying to convict somebody else's conscience? Okay, the Lord is from the book of Proverbs. <clears throat> if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Here's, what that, here's a custom that that comes from. It's like this. When you're, what you would do in order to keep your fire going all night was you'd take the coals of your fire and you would cover them over with dirt in the ground to try to keep your fire going all night. Right? In the morning, if you got up and you, hadn't, you didn't have enough coals, your fire would have gone out. So you didn't have any way of preparing your food. You didn't have any way of, of warming your house in the morning. And so what would happen is a woman would then take a piece of broken pot, which they carried things on their heads, there, take a piece of broken pot, put it on her head, go to her neighbor and say, could you please give me some of your coals from your fire? And if the person had coals and they heaped coals of fire on the person's head, it was a sign of great honor because they were giving you their life, their warmth, the way to prepare their food. Okay? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. In other words, you're doing something good to him. You're giving him your life. You're giving him your food. Okay? And the Lord will reward you. We have a lot of uh, things like that we don't understand because we're, we don't understand the Jewish customs. Okay? Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Speak to them comfortably and tell them that the the time has passed and the Lord has given them double for all their sins. Now, would that comfort you (laughs) to find out that you'd receive double for all your sins? Well, it would if you were a Jew. Because what happened was, when you were in extreme debt, what you would do is you would nail a list of your debts to your doorpost. And if somebody, some rich person, had mercy on you, they would come and they would fold that in half. They would double it over. 
they would uh, put the nail back in it, they'd write their name across it, and that is called receiving double for your debts, folded in half. Okay? And so, when, when he says to them, they've received double for their sins, it means they're forgiven. Okay? doesn't mean that God judged them twice as much as what they deserved. Okay? Or, Israel has become like a, like a hut in a cucumber patch. Do we know what that means? A hut in a cucumber patch. Okay, well, that was a, a statement of total worthlessness, when something was totally useless or worthless. Okay? Because what would happen is, when the cucumber harvest was in, you know how cucumbers get ripe very quickly. And if you don't catch them fast, they turn bitter and they get air inside, and they're just awful. And so you have to, when the cucumber harvest was on, they would have to go out and live. They lived in temporary shelters in, that they built with branches next to the cucumber field because they would walk out from, the people lived in the city, but walked out to their farms. Okay? So they would live out the cu- at the cucumber patch. Soon as, as it was light and they could work, they would start harvesting, and then they would work as far as, as long as they could and just sleep the other hours in this temporary shelter and then get up as soon as they could the next morning to bring in the cucumber harvest as fast as they could. And then when they, when they were finished, they left the cucumber patch there, I mean, the, the, the hut in the cucumber patch, cucumber patch, and then it would get trampled down by animals that would go by, the herds of cows or goats or whatever. It would get knocked over, it would become rotten, uh, animals would start to live in it, you know, snakes and that kind of stuff. And when you wanted to refer to something as totally useless, you would say, oh, it's become like a shack in a cucumber patch. Okay? And so when, when Isaiah says, Israel has become like a shack in a cucumber patch, what does that mean? The government shall be upon his shoulder. What does that mean? The picture of marriage. Because when a man got married, he walked around his wife three times, took the veil, which was usually about six yards long, on, that, was on, that she had on her head, took it and threw it over his shoulder, and he said, your government is now on me meaning that she's no longer under the authority of her parents, but she was going to take authority over her. And so it's a picture of Christ and the church. The government will be upon his shoulders. Uh, Anyway, there's a little side thing on uh, Jewish culture. (laughs) There are lots of things like that that we don't understand. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing when you give alms. And I'll let you guys figure out what that one means. You probably don't know what it means because you don't know the custom behind it. Okay, there's a book called Manners and Customs of the Bible. Manners and Customs of the Bible. There's another book called Strange Scriptures that Perplex the Western Mind. But Manners and Customs of the Bible is a much more complete edition. And they're listed in the order of the Bible through the book. Manners and Customs of the Bible. Okay, now I'm going to... I don't remember who who it's done by... There's only one like that, though. Okay, uh, let's go on. You got all that for free this morning. (laughs) Doesn't cost you a thing. Okay, so perfection, then, is living as God lives. It is doing what is right, doing what is loving. And it involves two things. There are two aspects to it. First of all, there's your attitude. There is your attitude. The Bible says that Jesus loved righteousness and hated iniquity. He loved righteousness and hated iniquity. In other words, he was in the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So it concerns your attitude. You must hate evil. 
And in Proverbs 1 it says, They would not choose the fear of the Lord. God works his fear in us by his Spirit, but we also have to choose the fear of the Lord. We have to choose to hate evil, and then God will cooperate with us through helping us to learn how to hate evil through his Spirit. He'll give us a revelation of evil, but he usually does that after we choose to hate evil. It usually happens after we make the choice, and we say to God, I want, God, your fear in my life. I want to learn to reverence you. I want to learn to reverence you so much that I learn to hate evil the way you do. So loving righteousness and hating iniquity, learning to live in the fear of God, that's our attitude. And our action is living up to the light that we have. Choosing to do what you know is right. Choosing to do what you know is right according to the knowledge that you have of what is right and wrong. Now, if you have a metaphysical view of sin, that sin is something that you are or something that's in you or something like that, then your view of sin, your view of sin is going to, um, is going to be metaphysical as far as perfection is concerned. It's going to be metaphysical as far as perfection is concerned. Either God changes you if you have a metaphysical view of sin or you're sunk because there's nothing you can do about it. Because the metaphysical thing has to do with your being. And if you believe in a metaphysical view of sin, then you cannot live, you cannot live any amount of time at all without sinning because sin is something that you are rather than something that you do. Okay? I asked a guy one time, I said, do you feel... What do you feel sin is? He said, oh, sin is something that I am. And I said, well then, what do you feel about sinning? you feel like you're constantly doing it? And he said, yes, I'm sinning just by being alive. I'm sinful. Just because I'm alive. And I said, well, isn't that a bit of a burden to carry around all the time, that just because you exist, you're guilty? And he said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. Okay? But if sin is something that you choose to do, then the possibility for living without sin is there. Question, can you live for two minutes without sinning? Do you think maybe you could go for two minutes without sinning? I'll just make it a little easier. One minute? How about 30 seconds? think maybe you could choose for 30 seconds? If you, can, if you think that you can choose for 30 seconds to do what is right, then you have a moral view of sin. You believe that sin is, a, is something that's a choice something you choose to do that you have control over. And if you can do it for one minute, then choose to do it for 30 times and do it for a half an hour. And then do that twice. Do it for an hour. And do that for about 16 hours while you're awake one day. And do it for the day. And you only live one day at a time. Actually, you only live one circumstance at a time. So live in perfection for the rest of your life. Right? You can just sit here for 30 seconds and do it. Just do it another 30 seconds. And another 30 seconds. So you only face one circumstance at a time. We live from moment to moment. We don't have to face the whole day at one time. We only face one moment at a time. One decision at a time. And if you live up to the knowledge that you have of what is right to do and choose to do what you feel, what you understand, what you know to be the highest well-being for God and other people, you live in perfection. And you can do that one little step at a time. And so it involves our attitude, which is to love righteousness and hate iniquity, 
and involves our actions, living up to the knowledge that we have. I was talking to a guy once that was a Presbyterian fellow. We were at a Presbyterian retreat in Germany. And I said to this guy that, that I believe that people could live without sin. And he said, oh no, he said, that's not possible. And I said, well, I believe it is, because sin is... I said, you think you could live two minutes without sin? And he said, well, yeah, I think maybe I could make it two minutes without sin. And I said, then you believe that sin is moral. Because if you believed it was metaphysical, you couldn't even live two minutes without sin. You couldn't live 30 seconds without sin. Because it's something that you are. You'd have to be guilty just because you exist. But since you believe that sin is moral, then if you could live two minutes without sin, why don't you just do it 30 times and do it for an hour? Hmm. And do that for 16 hours and do it for a whole day. Right then, as we were talking, two of the two YWAMers walked up. They both happened to be named Dave. They walked up, two of, the, two of my leaders. They walked up and um, I said to Dave, Dave, have you ever lived a whole day without sinning? And he goes, yeah. Yeah, it makes you feel really good. And I t- turned to the other Dave and I said, Dave, have you ever lived a day without sinning? And he said, yeah. I said, you sleep really well at night. Okay? And then they walked off and this guy's going, Live without sinning, huh? Okay. So then, let's talk about some reasons why, why people don't live in perfection. Why they don't walk in perfection before God. A. One reason why people don't walk in perfection before God is they're confused about the nature of sin. They think that sin is moral. Excuse me. They think that sin is metaphysical. And so they think it's impossible for them to live in perfection. And so they don't even try, because they think it's impossible. Excuse me. If you think something is impossible to do, you won't even try to do it. If you try, it's certainly going to be a half-hearted attempt. They're confused about the nature of sin. They don't realize it's a moral thing. They think it's metaphysical. So they think it is impossible And they don't even try. Now, here's what happens inside to a person like that. The justice of God will subconsciously be questioned in that person's mind. How can God do this to me to command me to do something I can't do and then judge me for not doing it? And, of course, when when that happens, when you subconsciously are questioning God about his justice, it's easy to become bitter against God, and then you can't walk in perfection because you're bitter against him, thinking that he's commanded you to do something that you can't do. Okay? So then people become bitter against God, and then they can't walk in perfection, because their bitterness against God keeps them from having a proper relationship with God, and when they're not having a proper relationship with God, they're not walking in perfection to start with. Okay, B... Some people don't walk in perfection because they don't hate sin. <laughs> Sounds simple, doesn't it? <laughs> Proverbs 16.6 Proverbs 16.6 It says, By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. So when people come to me and they say, How can I stop, How can I stop sinning? I said, Well, you need the fear of God. Because it says, By the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. So if you're having trouble in your life with keeping away from evil in a particular area, a certain kind of habit pattern, whether it's self-pity or anger or jealousy or um, wrong thought, lustful thoughts or masturbation or something like that, 
If you're having trouble in your life, what you need is the fear of God. You need to learn to hate that sin. And when you hate it, you won't do it. By the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. The fear of the Lord is reverence. We reverence God to the place where we hate what he hates and we love what he loves. The third thing, or C, some people don't walk in perfection because they've never dealt with their past sin properly. They've never dealt with their past sin properly. They've not repented properly. They've not confessed their sin before God, acknowledging that they were guilty for what they've done and there was no excuse. They deserved to go to hell. They've never faced the guilt of their sin. Maybe they've come to Jesus on a, give your life to Jesus and he'll give you peace and joy and happiness. And they've never really faced that they were guilty for their sin and deserved to be separated from God. Faced that, received forgiveness, and then set free through forgiveness. Also, some people have not made restitution for their sins. No. This is not dealing with past sin properly. If you haven't made, if you haven't repented and haven't confessed your sin, that's one problem. If you haven't made restitution to those people that you've sinned against, you also have not dealt with your past sin properly. Okay? Proverbs 21 and verse 8 says that a guilty man is crooked in all of his ways. A guilty man is crooked in all of his ways. When people come to you for counsel, which they will come to you for counsel, when they come to you for counsel and they say, I've got all these problems in my life, in almost every case, it will be a problem with guilt. Because a guilty man is crooked in all of his ways. So what I usually ask people, first thing off, is what are you feeling guilty for? And it may not be true that they're guilty, because sometimes Christians get into condemnation over things that are not sin. But if they're feeling guilty for something, then they at least need to have their thoughts straightened out about what they're guilty for and what they're not. But a guilty person is crooked in all of his ways. They can't live right. They think incorrectly about reality. They, they uh, have wrong relationships with other people. They can't relate to God correctly. They're guilty. In all, I mean, they're crooked in all of their ways because they're guilty. And so if you have restitution that needs to be made, you need to do your homework. If you've stolen from people in the past, if you've broken relationships in some way through bitterness, anger, resentment, you need to get those relationships straightened out. If you're still angry or bitter against your parents, you need to work on that. Get it straightened out. Ask them to forgive you for your bitterness. <laughs> in Numbers chapter 5, verses 5 through 8, Numbers 5, 5 through 8, it says, For every sin which a man commits against any of the commandments of the Lord, he shall make restitution in full for it. Any sin that you commit against any of the commandments of the Lord, the Bible says you shall make restitution in full for it. So you always have to ask, is there restitution to be done? See, your mind is like a file box. Your mind is like a, is like a computer that files away information in your memory, in your spirit. And when you have dealt with sin properly, it's like this. You're, let's say you had a habit of stealing in the past. And you're faced with being able to steal something, some money from somebody. Somebody's left their money lying around. And you look at that, you're going to be faced with a temptation to steal. And then when your mind goes like this, let's see, S, 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 
S-T-E-A-S-T-E-S-T-E-S-T-E-S-T-E-S-T-E-S-T-E-S-T-E-S-T-E-S-T-E-S-T-E-S-T-E-S-T-E-S-T-E-S-T-E-S-T-E-S-
You can't judge your own motives. And so, it's better for you not to judge yourself, but to commit all judgment to God, and don't judge yourself. David prayed, Lord, search me. Search my heart, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So, don't judge yourself. Don't search your own heart. Ask God to do that for you. And I would suggest that you never deal with sin in your life apart from prayer. Because it's too easy for you, for all of us, because we've been damaged in the past, it's too easy for us to think of ourselves as something is wrong with our lives when there really isn't, because there's been so much wrong with us in the past. And so it's best for you to go to prayer and say, God, is there anything wrong in my life? And the Holy Spirit will let you know right away, because that's his ministry, to convict of sin. You're honest, he will speak to you very quickly, bring the things to your mind that you specifically did. Okay? Let me uh, give you a little instruction on how to tell the difference between conviction and condemnation. A lot of you have trouble with this, and so I'm going to say something about it. Conviction happens like this. Conviction will always be specific, never vague. Conviction is always specific. You did this at this time, you said this, you had this wrong motive, you had this bad attitude, uh, you lied, you stole, you were envious, you were jealous. It will always be specific, because sin is a choice of transgression against the law. And so the Holy Spirit will always convict you of something specific because you always sin specifically. It's always a transgression against the law and he will point out to you the transgression that you committed. Second thing is, it always points you to the cross. The Holy Spirit will always point you to the cross because he, wa- he doesn't convict you just to let you know that you've done something wrong. He convicts you so that you can be free. He convicts you so that you can be forgiven of that. He doesn't want you to suffer under that. So he shows you what's wrong so that you'll see that you're guilty and come to the cross to be forgiven. So conviction is always specific. It points you to the cross and it always leaves you with a sense of joy. Sometimes you get happy just because you're being convicted. I've had times where the Holy Spirit was convicting me. me. I'm going, thank you, God. Thank you, God. I was so happy that he was just dealing with the thing in my life. You know, I, I hadn't repented yet, but I was happy that he was just dealing with it because I knew I was going to repent, I was going to be free, and so there was joy just in being convicted of my sin. Okay? It's always specific, it points you to the cross or to Jesus, and it always leaves you with a sense of joy. Condemnation, on the other hand, is vague. You feel guilty, but you don't know over what. You go to prayer and you don't, God doesn't speak anything to you, but you still feel guilty. condemnation is vague it always points you to yourself look what you did you've done it again you're always doing things like this you're never going to make it with God points you to yourself rather than to the cross and it always leaves you with a sense of despair or hopelessness always leaves you with a sense of despair or hopelessness and so don't judge yourself if you feel guilty, but it's a vague thing, and the Holy Spirit is not specifically convicting you of sin, then resist it as coming from yourself or from the enemy. To say, I rebuke that, I won't receive it. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Who is he that will condemn us? Will God? No. God will not condemn us, because he gave his Son for us. Okay? And second thing is no introspection. You don't look into your own life to try to figure out what's wrong, because you can't do that. All a man's ways are clean in his own eyes. 
No one can figure out the motives of his own heart. No introspection. Don't look into your own life trying to figure out what's wrong. The Bible says something about introspection. Jeremiah 10, 23 and 24. Jeremiah 10, verses 23 and 24. It says, The way of a man is not in him. I know, O Lord, that the way of a man is not in him to direct his own steps. Correct me, O Lord, but with righteousness, not in your anger. Correct me, O Lord, but with righteousness. And what does he do? He says, I know that the way of man is not in him to direct his own steps. And then he goes outward to God. God, you correct me. We can't handle it ourselves. So no introspection. And the third thing is, resist the enemy. He is the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before God day and night. And so resist the enemy. Resist the enemy. So some people don't walk in perfection because they're confused about the nature of sin. They think it's impossible. Because they don't hate sin. Because they haven't dealt with their past sin properly. Or because they believe the accusation of the enemy and don't do their spiritual warfare properly. Revelation 12, 10 and 11. Revelation 12, 10 and 11 says that the accuser of the brethren accuses us before God day and night. Now, how do you... How do you um, How do you overcome sin? You either do it directly or you do it indirectly. Just write that down and I'll explain. (laughs) How do you overcome sin? It's either directly or indirectly. How many of you here have never taken any drugs in your life, apart from something like aspirin or sodium pentothal when you had an operation? Okay, Interesting, isn't it? Not everybody's been involved in drugs. I've never had taken drugs in my life. Okay, now, if somebody took a bag of heroin when you're out in the street and waved it in front of you, would that be a problem for you? No, why not? Yeah, it's a choice. But there, were, there are some people in this room that that might be a problem for. Why is it different? Now, there's no appeal because the person has no, has no bondage in that area. There's been no commitment to that kind of thing in the past. And so I've had that happen to me where people wanted to give me drugs and were offering it to me. I said, I don't want that stuff. I wouldn't know. I looked at it and I went, I wouldn't know whether to snort it, shoot it, stick it in my ear. I mean, I wouldn't know what to do with that stuff. And so and then I said to the guy, I've got something that's so much better you wouldn't even believe it. And the guy said, oh, what's that? And I said, Jesus. And usually at that point they walk away. Okay? But this time he said, can you tell me about Jesus? I said, yeah. Want to go to lunch? He said, yeah. So I took him to lunch, and we talked about Jesus, and the whole restaurant had to listen, because <laughs> we got so excited. And the people turned around, they were sitting at the counter, turned around watching our table, listening to the conversation about Jesus. Okay, so you never know what's going on in a person's heart. But see, that had no appeal to me, because I'd not been involved in that in the past. So I could choose directly, no, I don't want to be involved in that. Because there was no bondage in my life in that area, I could choose to fulfill the law of God directly. But there are other things that I've been involved in in the past, such as self-pity, that has an appeal to me. Okay? And there's a, there's a bondage in my life because I lived for a long time in self-pity. And that kind of thing has an appeal to me because I've come into bondage in that area. But I'm still responsible to walk in perfection before God, but I do it indirectly. What I have to do is say, God, would you please help me 
to overcome in this area. So that when I'm faced with a temptation, I can't choose to do it directly because I've, been, I've come into bondage in that area until I gain a certain sense of freedom through right choices. And so what I do is ask God to help me through His Spirit. Influence me, God, towards doing what is right. And then God becomes active in your life and you choose to do what is right but is indirectly because you don't have the strength to do it by yourself directly because of your choices in the past then you choose to do it indirectly by asking God for help. Okay? So it does not have to be on our own power if there's an area in our life where we've been corrupted and enslaved by sin. But we do it directly or we do it indirectly. But we are still responsible to walk in perfection. Awake to righteousness and stop sinning. And that involves two things. Your attitude, your attitude towards doing what is right, that is to hate evil, and your action. Live according to the knowledge that you have, but you only have to live one circumstance at a time. So, it is our responsibility, and I would encourage you, walk in perfection before God. Okay? It can be done. God commands us to do it. And it brings real freedom into our lives when we do so. Okay? And the more you walk in it, the easier it becomes because you develop habit patterns of righteousness. Okay? Stop there.